Today's show is sponsored by Mack Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you will ever wear. I am wearing uh, ah, the old yellow and gray. What do you think, Bernie? Looks nice. Confident, assertive, a little bit cheeky. Uh, they smell great, too, because they're made of naturally antimicrobial fiber, which means I smell awesome. You can wear them to work. You can wear them to podcasts. You can wear them when you listen to podcasts. They are easy to buy. You go to MacWeldon.com, you get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. If for some reason you don't like these socks, you get to keep them, and Mac Weldon will send them your money back. I don't know how it works, but they keep doing it. Anyway, so that's the pitch. You go there, you get 20% off. If you go to MacWeldon.com and use the promo code RECODE, that's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. I'm here with Bernie Burns, the co-founder of Rooster Teeth. Normally, Bernie, I say Digital Media is a real company with a funny name. Right. Now I have to say Bernie Burns is also a real person right. with a funny name. It is. It's not a real name. My real name is Michael Burns. But when really? I, when I moved from New York to Texas. You wrecked my whole opening. There were too many Michaels. So. Rooster Teeth. I just is wanted a, to listen. I wanted to get the facts right. That's Rooster all. Teeth is a real company. Rooster Teeth is a real company. Yes. Also a funny name. Also a funny name. And an early nod to the early days of online video. It was the first catchphrase that our audience ever latched onto. I was doing some serious Googling. Before I came here? Yeah. Trying to find the origin? Yeah. Yeah. Can I? Well, you you tell me what the origin is. It's a great mystery, right? So everyone always asks us that. What does Rooster Teeth stand for? And there's been a number of times over the years where I've, I've actually regretted the name of the company, Rooster Teeth, because it's just such a silly name. But can I go a little blue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? yeah that's okay. what I'm, that's, I'm, I want to elicit the words from you. I didn't want to say them. I want you to say them. So the very first video we ever put out for Red vs. Blue, which is was the trailer for Red vs. Blue, the voiceover guy who's doing the trailer, gets in an argument with the guy who's doing the subtitles. And that's the joke of the trailers. They start arguing back and forth. Subtitle guy calls the voiceover guy, in subtitles, of course, he calls him a cockbite. Audience latched onto that. That's and they started, a good thing to latch onto. Yeah, exactly. And then they started calling themselves that. They started Cockbiters. Ref- yeah, exactly. They called themselves the, the cockbites. So as a, when we formed the company, Red vs. Blue took off, and we wanted to form a company that was over that, I went to the state of Texas. I live in Austin, Texas. And I tried to register Cockbite Productions. The state of Texas said, you're not doing that. So I came up with Rooster Teeth. That's something you cannot do in Texas, even though it's a free republic. Yes, exactly. Weird. Well, there's limitations. I mean. So now that we've talked about cockbiting, let's back up and talk about <laughs> Rooster Teeth. What Rooster Teeth is for the handful of the people in our audience who do not know what okay. the company does. Uh, you guys make videos. We do. Primarily. What, we have probably been making videos for the internet longer than just about anybody. So you guys are sort of pre-YouTube, if I, if I have my facts right. We started, the first video we ever had that went viral was in 2001. Pre-YouTube. And, and then we started our, our long-running web series, Red vs. Blue, we started in 2003. That's three years before YouTube. So you started off making a, a web series, Red vs. Blue, is, is based on, uses the characters from Halo. That is correct. And you sort of create your own comedy based around that. It's actually, it's a little distinction, but it's not, we don't use the characters from Halo. We use the graphics from Halo. So we don't use any of like, Master Chief is the well-known character of Halo. We don't use any of those characters and repurpose them. We just use the images of the If you're a casual gamer or even less than casual gamer, you just go, those look like the Halo dudes. Right. And that's the idea. Or they look like robots. Yeah. You might even think that. There was a a guy who told me he discovered Red vs. Blue because he found a CD at his local pool on the somebody had burned our episodes and he went home and watched it. He thought it was a uh, cartoon about drunk robots. It's like the AOL uh, distribution method back in the 
I'm always Early fascinated 90s, by how they people... mail those out. Exactly right. Exactly. So let's pull even further back before we go into red versus blue and everything else you make. So broadly speaking, the company today makes videos for a big audience of people who are what age, what kind of stuff. Just describe it broadly to someone. You well, ran, we, you run into someone on the street. What is Rooster Teeth? We do? can go over the big numbers that everybody does. So, uh, for instance, on YouTube, which is a huge platform for us, we have about 28 million subscribers across all of our owned and operated channels. We have about 6 billion video views, and we produce about 45 different shows. We're a little different than most online video companies or most you know people who have a channel on YouTube in that we tend to focus more on scripted narrative content. If I'm describing your audience, I don't want to generalize. Can I call them dudes? Can I call them young dudes? Can I call them millennials? Gamers? Gamers is the the term that's most often used to describe the So you're, you're doing stuff for about games, for uh, not always, though, about games, but for people who like games, people who will know the difference between Master Chief and someone who looks like Master Chief but is not Master Chief. Well, yeah, and also I think people who just grew up in the general culture of gaming and internet now. And I kind of re- – I reject the term gamer because I fell into that category myself a lot. It's like if you look at HBO, what they're doing, when they're making Game of Thrones and they're making Westworld and they're making these – higher production value, longer form series, you wouldn't say to them, oh, so you're making television shows for movie fans. It's like, well, what's a movie? Everybody's a movie fan. That's how we feel about gamers. Everybody's a gamer, but they they tend to call that out for people who play games, but everyone has a game on their mobile phone. Everybody does But it's a niche though, right? It's not, uh, everyone's playing games, right? Mm -hmm. But if your exposure to games is Candy Crush, you're going to come to some of the Rooster Sea stuff and not not really understand what you guys are doing. So it's a niche, but it's a big niche and a growing niche. Right. Yes, absolutely. Whereas you could come to Game of Thrones and sort of not know anything about Dungeons and Dragons or orcs and trolls, and you would sort of get some sense of what they're doing. Yeah, and I think Westworld's a great example. Westworld is a show, if you look at it the way it's structured, it's like a game. It's like you're watching a show based on an MMO, but that's not part of it. And of course, then there's all the game inside of it with the maze and everything else, not to give any spoilers. But it's actually, I think, one of the best video game shows that's not presented as a video game I'm like show. five episodes in, so i got to do some catch-up. So no more spoilers right, well, for the rest of this episode, Don't read any fan please. theories. Don't read any fan theories. It sort of leeches in anyway, though. It does. Which is kind of good for you, right? Like this, I mean, the point is, not the point, one idea is that, that gaming culture has sort of suffused general pop culture. So even if you're not familiar with... Halo or any of the Halos or whatever. The, I'm, I'm right. long removed from console gaming. You still have some sense of what people are doing and talking about. You've been exposed to it, maybe even ambiently at one point. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that, that benefits you guys. And I think there's the common misconception that because, for instance, with Red versus Blue, that it's based on a video game, that it's about the video game. It's not at all. It's the way we wrote it. It's more like uh, Stripes in Space. It's more of a right. send-up to a military comedy bureaucracy humor. There's no inside jokes about the games or anything like that. So there is this common misconception that if you don't understand the game, you won't like it. It just speaks to the same sensibilities right. of people who like sci-fi and geek culture. What was the flip side? Duncan Jones came in. What was the, the movie he, he did? Warcraft. Warcraft. Yeah. So I saw that. Loved Duncan Jones' movie. Didn't love Warcraft in part because I think even though he was trying to straddle sort of for Warcraft fans, people who didn't like Warcraft, I don't – think that movie would appeal to you if you didn't know what Warcraft was. It definitely, would, about. it would definitely appeal more to people that like Warcraft, but I think people who played World of Warcraft for thousands upon thousands of hours did, also didn't like the movie because it didn't match up to their expectations. So no one liked it unless you were in China where apparently made a ton, ton of, money. of money. Yeah. So I guess they're going to make more Warcraft movies. It really had a huge impact on the way that people look at China and the w- movies that they're willing to fund. 
Are you guys going to make a lot of stuff for China? Well, why not? Let's oh. do it. We're so, just going to follow in the path of Warcraft. Talk, let's talk about how you got into this business. If you go to Wikipedia and you look up your name, there's right. you and five other people who are listed as co-founders. Do you guys mm-hmm. all get together in a room and say, let's make uh, videos for gamers? Pretty much. We don't want to call gamers? It, it's, it, it's kind of a long story, but it basically condenses down to I was a computer science student at the University of Texas. And this was a, just a couple of years after Robert Rodriguez had made El Mariachi, made it for $7,000 down in Mexico. Classic indie films made on a credit card. Still holds up really well today. Yeah, and then that turned into the Desperado franchise. He was able to get that picked up by Miramax, and it launched his huge career. now has multiple franchises. So we were very inspired by that idea that you could just go out in the late 90s. You could go out, make a movie, and set the world on fire. And, and so, you could literally just sort of make it on a credit card based on whatever money you had and resources you had around you. As long as you were scrappy and you had a lot of passion, yes, that you could make a movie on the cheap and you could get it out. So your plan was, you you went to college not thinking you were going to make movies, but at some point you say, hey, that looks fun, let's do that. Oh, I went to college to to be a doctor because I identified that. took a terrible turn. According to my parents, you bet. I changed from pre-med to computer science, but that was because the internet had kind of come out of nowhere. I went, when I went to college, Freshman year, I'd never heard of an email address. And then I got one my junior year. I had to get one for one of my courses. And then the internet, as you know, just exploded really out of nowhere. It was just a couple of years. And I was in college during all that. Wanted to get involved with that. Switched to computer science. Because I already had so many hours of biology pre-med, I had a lot of spare time on campus. Wanted to learn about filmmaking. And I met a film student, Matt Hullum, one of our co-founders. And he just we talked about making a movie together. It's like I figured I could go sit in film classes or – I could go make a movie, and by the time I'm done with the movie, I've learned everything that I need to know about making movies. So what was the first movie? So we made a 16-millimeter film. Wow. We shot on some film, and it was 105 minutes called The Schedule, uh, and it took us about 13 months to shoot it and then edit it. I built us a nonlinear editor so we could digitize footage, and that was really rare at the time. And we thought by the end of that 13 months, okay, that's it. We have our movie. We're done. But that's when we learned that's only your ticket into – what is the real game of film, which is distribution and getting it out there and letting an audience see it. And in the late 90s, the way that looked was it was independent film festivals. And so we had to take our movie, send it to a selection committee of about seven people, and they would tell us whether or not we could then show it to a room filled with 200 people. Right. That, that was at, the at model. various college campuses across the country, sort of exactly one after right. the other. We, had, we have some very nice rejection letters from some of the most prestigious film festivals all over the world. But – uh about that same time, because I had built that nonlinear editor and I could digitize footage, I started capturing video footage. You know, DV video was big at the time. Started making little shorts with my friends. Matt had moved away to Los Angeles and started a successful career in film. He, you know, dusted himself off from yeah. me and moved on to, out to Hollywood. I stayed in Austin. And I made a viral video where we, we were making fun of the old Apple Switch ads. Do you remember those? Where people would stand against a white background and right, talk right, about right. Yeah. Yeah. This is pre-John Hodgman era. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And uh, the days of Ellen Feiss, if you remember her. She was kind of one of the first, like, big viral meme hits as a person online. Anyway, um, we made this video. It went viral. People were sending it all over the place. There was no YouTube. And viral meant you literally sent it to someone and said, watch this thing. That's exactly right. They would send it to somebody in email. That person would send it to five other people, and that's where the term viral come from. from. It just was shared in that way, and it would spread that way. Wait, before, did the, the movie you made, the original movie, that was called what? The Schedule. Can I see that? Did anyone see it? Has it been seen? We Can had you an dig op- it up somewhere? We had an opportunity to sell it. 
And we decided we wanted to hold on to the story because we made it for $9,000 and I think we were offered about $25,000 for it. So there's, a, there's an original unseen version of it. We're actually developing it now into a new series. And that, but you'll, but the, the, the original one is, is buried in someone's backyard. It's literally on VHS tapes underneath my bedroom. Awesome. Bed. Yeah, it's just sitting under my bed. So I'm sorry I interrupted. So are you explaining how a viral video went viral before YouTube? Well, so then Matt was in LA. And we had put this video up, and it started getting shared all over the place. And Matt was a manager of a visual effects company. He was walking around. He went to the guy's desk who's never doing what he should. He's always, like, looking at something on the internet. And this day, he was looking at a video of our friend Gus. And he listened to the video and realized it sounded like my writing. So he called me, and he said, I just saw this video on a guy's computer at work, and it seemed like something you would have made. And I said, I put that up yesterday after work at my tech support company. I put it up at 5 o'clock. So this was to us, this was, you would hear this story very commonly today, but this was a huge light bulb moment for us because this was all those walls of distribution just falling down. Here was a video that got all the way across the country to somebody that I would have wanted to see it, and it got to him before- share it over the internet. Before I could call to tell him to watch it and look for it. He had already seen it. So that was a huge moment for us. And so we were- Really all in at that point on digital media. We could Again, just... it's, it's hard to, if, if you are a not old, an old person, hard to imagine how mind-blowing this was back then. Because now, of course, it's literally just a, a keystroke and it goes out. Right. Or you don't even set a keystroke. It just shows up in your Facebook feed even if you didn't ask for it. Mm-hmm. And, and prior to this, you literally had to hand someone a tape or mail them a tape. Right. Say, you should go see this thing. They hey. spread really slowly. Yeah, or yeah, literally that we have people that we talk to in the audience where most of the people who watched the early seasons of Red vs. Blue, they watched it at someone else's house or they were handed a CD with episodes burned Yeah, up. you would tell someone, hey, I have a cool tape of whatever, mm-hmm. a thing that you couldn't rent at a store, come over and watch it. And this was the era of the only other video online at the time really uh, were flash animations. And we were doing – we were – so far in front of the online video revolution that you couldn't watch a video in a web browser. You had to download a file and watch it in a separate player. There was none of those players. Right, again, available. this is in ancient history. But ancient web, web, vi- web video used to be a really difficult thing because you had to, if you, were, if you wanted to make this stuff, this is what screwed up a lot of the early Web 1.0 companies, is they had to support a zillion different browsers and a zillion right. different machines. And, and the end product was super crude stuff anyway that you waited a long time to watch. Different codecs and everything else. Yeah. The other thing, too, is we had to host it. There's no YouTube, so we had to host all of our own videos. So you get then. So red versus blue happens when? How far into that process? So red versus blue was an idea I had for a show uh, to use. It's a process called Machinima. There's a company called Machinima. Yeah. There's. It's actually started as a type of animation where you use 3D engines, typically video games, and you do real time animation. So we could do five minutes of animation a week with a team of about three people. These were my buddies in Austin, and uh, that was April first of two thousand and three. We put the first episode online. And we had to educate people on how to download it. We also had to educate people that this was a series, that this wasn't just a one-off video, which is what most of the internet was, that there's going to be an episode this week, there's going to be an episode next week, and this is a show. And we put the first one up. It got linked at the time on Slashdot and Fark and Penny Arcade. Fark. Yeah, Fark. Wow. And uh, it, it just destroyed our servers. And 3,000 people watched the first episode. Uh, 250,000 people watched the second episode. And by the end of the month... The fourth episode, we were at a million views a week. And what was your ambition back then, 2003? Was this a, a side project or was this something you thought was going to be a business? It was a fun video that I made for my friends to make them laugh. And then we put it online. Uh, we had some expectations for it as a project, but all of those were surpassed probably by about the second day 
of Red vs. Blue. It was as close to an overnight success as I've ever encountered. And then at what point does that become a business for you? I, I'll tell you exactly the moment it becomes a business. Because we had to host all this stuff, and because this was before YouTube, we couldn't click a button or a checkbox and monetize our videos. There were no pre-roll advertisements because YouTube didn't exist. There was not this huge catalog of online video against people you know, that people were selling pre-roll ads against. So for us, it became a huge challenge. We were hosting the video. Every time somebody downloaded one of our files, which it cost, about, make cost us money. So this huge hit was a huge problem. Gus came to me, who was he was in charge of all of our technology. He said, got our bill for the first month, or did a calculation on what our bill was going to be. It was going to be thirteen thousand dollars. And we're for like, your hobby. Yeah, for our hobby. Like our nighttime hobby after work, after our tech support jobs. And so very quickly we realized we had something that people wanted to see, that they wanted more of. We just had to figure out a way to get them to do it. So then I started working on the business model for Rooster Teeth and Reverse Blue. That's where Rooster Teeth came into play because I also wanted people to know if we're building a business on this, it's not about this one show, that we're going to have other shows as well. So started to build the vision for Rooster Teeth at that point in time. And then our first dollar we ever made was subscriptions, asking the audience to contribute to the show. Since we're talking about money, this is a good time to stop and listen to our fine sponsors who make all this possible. We'll be back in a minute. That was a rocking segue. Good, right? Today's show was brought to you by Videoblocks, a stock media company everyone can afford. With a Videoblock subscription, you get unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. It's the same content you'd find on more expensive sites, just way cheaper. If you're a subscriber, you get everything 100% royalty-free, even if you cancel your subscription. So if you're working on a personal project, commercial project, you pay zero royalties, you keep what you download forever. Videoblocks is offering my listeners a one-year subscription for $99. That's 50 bucks off the usual price tag for my listeners only. To get that, you go to videoblocks.com slash recode for a one-year subscription for $99. That's videoblocks.com slash recode for this exclusive offer. This show is also brought to you by our new sponsor, HelloFresh. They're the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions. They send you a box full of stuff. You take 30 minutes to make it. You can make it if you're a novice. You can make it if you're an experienced home cook. Anywhere in between, it is fun, it's easy, it's good for you. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantity so you don't need to worry about what you do with the leftovers. They have a full-time registered dietitian on staff who reviews each of these recipes to make sure it's actually good for you. It all comes right to your doorstep in a special insulated box. This is one of those ideas that sound weird when you first hear about it, like, like ride-sharing services. And then you do it, and you realize, oh, this makes perfect sense. Um, it's a really easy way to make yourself good food, to know what you're putting in your body. That way you don't order crap from, from a delivery service. It's good for you, and it's fun. You feel good about it. I tried this stuff myself. I made an awesome pan-roasted chicken, a really good steak and Brussels sprout stir-fry. You can do more exotic stuff if that's up your alley. You can get this stuff in all different varieties and sizes. It's really good. It's really easy to make. So you got to try it out. You can save big when you sign up for HelloFresh with my promo code. Get 35 bucks off your first week of deliveries by visiting HelloFresh.com, entering media when you subscribe. That's HelloFresh.com, promo code media. We're back here with Bernie Burns of Rooster Teeth. I think the cockbiter would still be good maybe for a secondary business. You know, I have to say about brands in general, I have come to appreciate my own brand more over time because 
I didn't realize when I made it in 2003 how important having a uniquely searchable term would be. Yeah. And if you're looking for rooster teeth, you're not going to find anything else. You're going to find us, and that's it. Whereas cockbiting, who knows? Who knows? What you, maybe you do know what, but a bunch of things might turn up. I, and once we had a subscription service, I didn't want cockbite.com appearing on people's credit cards. That's, <laughs> that's just too long of an explanation. But yeah, could go either way. Um, so the people, internet, they internet, make videos on the internet. It's fine. <laughs> sure they do. <laughs> the internet and the business around the internet toggles back and forth between give it away for free, sell it. Give it away for free, sell it. Sure. Which business model should we have? You guys started off by saying we're going to sell this stuff to you. Were you selling actual access to the video or were you, were you selling something else? So one of the most ubiquitous things on the internet, which was a huge annoyance to us early on, was it took us a week to make Red versus Blue. We would write it on Monday. We'd record the audio on Tuesday and Wednesday. Thursday and Friday we would – make the video, and then we post it very late on Friday night, like 2 a.m., staying up to encode it. So we would work all week on this thing. It was enormously difficult. We were really concerned of what the audience was going to think about this episode versus the last episode. We post it. We'd see people watching it. We'd see it start to get downloaded. You know, the comments would be there. They'd be blank. Be like, okay, what's the first comment? What are they going to say? What are they going to say? And, of course, the first comment was first post. Right. Always. Yeah. That's, that is the one universal law on the internet. If there's a comment box, the first post is always going to be some jackass going first post. Yeah, Twitter got rid of that, though, right? People don't do first on Twitter anymore. They do they don't, something else. No, they don't typically do that because it's so immediate, right? So the thing about the first post is people can't believe they got there before anybody else. And they want to, like, stake that claim, right? An amazing accomplishment. It is an amazing accomplishment. But we were annoyed by that as artists, but on a business level, saying, okay, if we take a look at this, this is what the audience is telling us they value. This is important to them to be first. And so what we did with our subscription model was we built it in such a way that if you paid $20 for the season, that's the way it was when we first started. Now it's a monthly subscription. If you paid $20 for the season of Red versus Blue, you would get a DVD. We'd burn all the episodes and send them to you. And then you'll also get early access to the episodes as they air digitally. So we would put it out on Friday, and then the rest of the public would get it on Monday. So we if call that the economy of first. Yeah, I like it. And if you're, if you're trying to put a business head on this, you would say that you have two different things going on, right? One is you're windowing, That's windowing the content. Yeah. You, get, you paid for it. You get early access. And also, it uh, sounds less fancy, but it's a fan club, right? Mm-hmm. You like the stuff a lot. You are going to get a memento from us. And it looked a lot like crowdfunding does today. I mean, we didn't call it that back then, but if you paid $10, you got just the digital air. And if you paid $20, you got the digital layer plus the physical media at the end of the season. And and if you didn't do that, you could still watch it for free. Were there yep. ads? No, there were no ads. No, there were no ads. You just had to be patient, and it would come out on Monday. And so w- in the early days, how big was that uh, that paying audience? Well, it kept us afloat. Uh, that and T-shirts, which were kind of the currency of the internet, uh, we borrowed from a huge inspiration for me, which was Homestar Runner. Uh, they supported their entire Flash animation empire based on T-shirt sales from what we could tell. And so we started selling those as well. So in the early days, before our first season, we couldn't have physical media until the first season was done. So until that point, we were about 50-50, I'd say, subscriptions and merchandise. Maybe a little bit heavier on merchandise. But like with the size of that audience, paying on single-digit thousands, tens of thousands? In the first few months, uh, we were getting – I mean, I remember in particular we would get a couple people who would just over-donate. We had one – gentleman who gave us 500 bucks and we thought it was a mistake. And he goes, no, you guys have given me more laughs than a night out at a comedy club I'm with a my friends. Fan. I there love you go. It. Yeah. And that's when we discovered there's people like that out there who really want to support things that they love. And I, I'm one of those people myself. Uh, so in the, in the first year, we had enough to where we could fund everything and, you know, we could host all the files and then have enough to reinvest in the second season and make it a little bit bigger as well. And so you don't want to tell me how many people we are, are, we're using it then. How many people are, are, are paying now? 
Uh, we have over 200,000 monthly subscribers we're, now. We're paying money. It's what, yeah. three bucks a month? Yeah, those are our monthly paying subscribers. And it's still really the same business model, right? They get early access to stuff. They get probably not DVDs, I'm assuming, but other other physical objects that they can use to show well, there's, off. Our subscription service now is a lot more sophisticated, uh, where we have the digital layer as well for our first program, uh, which looks a lot more like a subscription video on demand yeah. service. And then we also have tiers where there's a what we call the double gold layer, another inside joke with our, our audience. And that is where they get a crate every month where we have a box where we put in different items from the Rishith universe and the Rishith store and they get a, a physical product every month as well. And do you think they're they're paying for it because they want that stuff or they're paying for it because they love you guys and it's like having an NPR tote bag and they want to fly the banner? That's exactly it. And some of it's exclusive merchandise that we only put in that box as well. And then some other merchandise that we get from our partners. And it's just you never know what you're going to get in the box every month. And the, I think the exclusive items are probably the biggest part of it. So when you guys you guys start off by saying we're going to we're going to sell subscriptions to this stuff, we're going to ask people to pay for the content. That's what 2003, 2004. 2000, it was, it, we started in April of 2003. We were asking by May 1st of 2000. So there was a culture of the internet then, and, and it continues to be that no, it's, this stuff's going to be free, and, and you can't ask people to pay for this stuff. For people coming up to you and saying this, you can't sell this stuff. It doesn't make any sense to sell this stuff. Wise up. There are always those voices. As soon as we announced it, and of course it was a nail-biting moment when we say, hey, here's the deal. Uh, we have to be able to afford the bandwidth costs on our server to be able to do this. Here's what it's going to cost. If you do this, we'll do this. And then there were definitely some people who were like, I'm out. Bye. Money's involved. Nothing on the internet should cost any money, and they were gone. Right. So now you weren't even requiring them to pay money. It wasn't like they had to get behind yeah. a paywall. They just didn't like the idea that you were attaching dollars to it at no. all. Especially on the internet at the time. In fact, for us – it's funny to think about. It. We've been doing this so long. There was a long period of time after we could have added pre-roll advertisements to the episodes where we didn't for a long period of time. It was, it was a decision for early content creators whether or not to put ads on the content they were posting online. Nowadays, that's the first step that everybody takes is adding those pre-roll advertisements. Yeah, although I think there's some push to sort of get rid of those again and we'll go back Only to paying for it. Only because they decreased in value, but yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. There is that. So are there there's video ads and the stuff I didn't I, I know I, I was on YouTube looking at a lot of the stuff the last couple of days. So there's I saw pre-rolls there. You eventually make some money from that. Sure, if it's on YouTube, that's the number way to monetize on yeah. YouTube. So, nerdy side question. I remember going to some online video thing years ago and Alan Debevoix was there from Machinima. Right. And he wanted to explain what he did and he showed red and blue. Right. So, uh, at what point did you get connected with Machinima, which eventually became a company, which eventually just got sold to Warner Brothers? It started with a horrible period of brand confusion because we were the standout hit of the genre of Machinima. Then there was this company called Machinima, and we were constantly confused. So, you were distributing that. your stuff through Alan Debevoise's company called Machinima? Never. Never. No, oh. No. But we, there was times when our videos appeared on their site, but we never distributed with them. <laughs> Um, there was so he should not have been showing your video there was a as an example of, of his work. There was, yeah. Well, All right. Well, there was I'll a period of time where we did, after a while of brand confusion, we was like, and Machinima pioneered, and to their credit, I think they pioneered the MCN model, uh, and especially with the growth of YouTube. We actually ended up partnering with them for ad sales and because the relationship was such that we had so much brand confusion, and it was what didn't seem to be going away, and it was better to try to fi figure out a way to – have that benefit us in some way. And so we had some uh, ad partnerships with Machinima for a short period of time. So that was... I'm not bitter. That was really just for me, I guess, and maybe if Alan Debevoise listens to this thing. So you guys predate YouTube. You're, you have a successful business, or at least the makings of a successful business pre-YouTube. YouTube explodes 2005, 2006. I still remember the first time I saw it. What did you see My first? buddy who made the series, Ask a Ninja, showed it to me. He's like, this thing's going to be huge. I'm like... 
I took one look at that. I was like, this side looks like garbage. <laughs> Looks like garbage. Work really well. What's well, a great prediction? So, yeah, yeah uh, you should not have shorted their stock. They sold a year <laughs> and a half into it to Google. Right. And the whole idea is we – and there weren't ads. They had huge bandwidth bills and server bills, and they had no yeah. advertising. Um, but they get sold to Google, and it becomes very clear they're going to turn that into an ad-based business. So at some point, do you think now that there is going to be an ad-based business here, we should move into that and move away from subscriptions? Well, because there were not all these entities around when we started, and our dot-com was where we focused, initially – our evaluation of all of these platforms was to see them as competitors because why would I want to put my videos up on YouTube, especially before they had a partner program? Why would I just take my videos? Right. In the very old days, they didn't share ad revenue. First of all, there was no ad revenue. Nope. They didn't, yeah. and they didn't share anything with people who put the stuff up there. No. And they were, to their credit, enormously progressive for creating that model. But for a long period of time, they, they didn't have it. Like my buddy I was just talking about, who ran Ask a Ninja, that ran on YouTube millions of views pre-monetization. So – um, you know, it's just a, a timing thing, really, for the success of some of these series. And, uh, you know, we looked at them as a competitor for a long period of time. Frankly, we were probably a little bit slow to get on YouTube. We didn't get on YouTube until 2008 or 2009, and we ended up having to play catch up. But it just reached a point as a brand where YouTube, you had to be part of the conversation. If you wanted to be an online video, then you want people to see your stuff yeah. you yeah, go you to the YouTube. biggest video website in the world. And put it up there. And then once it was up there and freely available on this thing with huge distribution, what did that do to your subscription business? Did it boost it? Did it knock it down because it was so easy to find? For roosterteeth.com, the subscription layer has always grown at a very steady pace. And so there probably was some cannibalization of having the videos up on YouTube and people just thinking, oh, I'll go to YouTube and watch it. But then also the, the more the notoriety that we got – you know, for the more eyeballs we had, that always grew the subscription layer. However, for a really, really long period of time, and I don't know that we're beyond it yet, people who were on YouTube didn't leave YouTube. They didn't click away to go to anything else. Even though you can put in all sorts of buttons and please and please subscribe and please visit our site. Right. Click this button here. It's better than it used to be, but it was always very hard to get people to leave YouTube. So a YouTube viewer is a YouTube viewer. They don't go to this other thing. I think it's definitely true for – I think people would really hope that, you know, if I, if I put a clip of SNL or Jimmy Fallon up on, online, they'll eventually move over and watch it on TV. And it turns out, no, no, they're going to watch it on YouTube. That's where they want to watch it. Right. And it does and kind of reduce the exposure benefit of being on yeah. YouTube. Yeah. If you're trying to build a, an actual business. Uh, some of the stuff I was looking at the last couple of days is on YouTube Red. That's her subscription service. Right. How's that working out for you? Great. So we were wrapping up – this is going through a number of years later. Uh, we – just recently produced our first feature film as Rooster Teeth. Got back to our core feature film roots Laser for Matt and I. Laser team. team. Right. And so we were at the end of our post-production cycle. So we had already shot the movie and we were uh, about eight months, nine months into post-production. And then we learned that YouTube, Google, were they were launching their huge subscription platform. And that's just one of those serendipitous moments. That's a window in history that doesn't come up that often. And they wanted to make Laser Team one of their launch titles. And uh, you know they put it up on billboards and Times Square and everything else. It was enormously successful for us to be on YouTube Red. And, and it's successful because they're putting billboards of, of you guys up on Times Square or because they're giving you money or, or both? Well, we raised $2.5 million for Laser Team via crowdfunding. So we had a $2.5 million sci-fi movie. You know, what can make or break movies at that level is marketing. And YouTube launching YouTube Red, they were willing to put the marketing muscle behind Laser Team. And we had a great movie. We just needed to let people know that we had a good movie. And so they came out and they watched it. They watched it. We were able to fulfill to all of our crowdfunding uh, obligations. And then we were also able to show it to the YouTube Red subscribers. And was that something where prior to that you guys might have thought you'd put it in theaters, you'd, you'd sell? We did. You did. Yeah, we did that. So – 
Uh, when we went to crowdfund Laser Team, a big part of Rooster Teeth is engagement, how we approach our audience. We ran a crowdfunding campaign for an original IP, a movie that nobody had ever heard about before. We did it on Indiegogo, and we broke the record for the highest ever funded project on Indiegogo. It was uh, $2.5 million. And then at the time, of course, people were asking, well, how will this be distributed? And I said, well, this movie's going to take you know 12 months to make. I can't tell you how people are going to be watching content in 12 months. You know, even, you know, even sooner than that, things could rapidly change. So I'd like for it to be in theaters, but we'll see. Sure enough, over the time we were making the movie, uh, we learned about a company called Tug that allowed us to do crowdsourced theatrical screenings. So we actually had a huge opening night all over the globe for all of our fans. We had laser team screenings in theaters in 300 different cities and set the record for crowdfunded theatrical release too. And do you think your audience wants to see it on a big screen because it's a cool mark of validation or because they actually distinguish between watching on a phone, watching on a laptop, watching on TV, watching on a, on a movie screen, and those are different experiences they have different values on? Well, we tend to have a younger millennial audience, and I hesitate to use the word millennial because yeah, the, I had to say it the first time. They tend to react negatively, you know, which I understand because it's usually said in such a pejorative context. But honestly, the social aspect of it, I think more than anything else, because we've outsourced so much of our social interaction, we've discovered in the past few years that live events are such a huge touchstone for people, and that's theatrical screenings, our Let's Play groups that play video games for some of our personality-driven content, we actually do tours with that where they play video games and sell at theaters like the Hammerstein Ballroom uh, and you know theaters all over the U.S. And when, when I go to the theater, what am I watching? For Let's Play Live, in that particular – you're watching our video game personalities. Right. In some cases, they're playing video games and you're watching them do that. Esports. Well, I just sort of. some scare quotes around it. It's kind of like – the well, best the, comparison with esports and Let's Play is like the Harlem Globetrotters of esports. So they're not, you know, you don't right. go to watch them to be tremendous at the game. You watch them because they're goof entertaining. Around, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then they do skits in between, and it's just a comedy show. It's like a, it's a, it's a rock and roll concert for millennials, essentially. And then we also have our events, our live events. RTX is a big convention that we have in Austin. Last year, we had 70,000 people show up to our convention in Austin. So your fans think of going to a Rooster Teeth movie screening as – not something necessarily where they, I need to see this on the big screen, but I'm going to go there because there's going to be other millennial gamers uh, like myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, they want to share Rooster Teeth with the people in their life, which is why we made Laser Team as a big motivation for it. You can't hand someone a 14-year box set of Red versus Blue now, which is where it's, it's going to its 15th season. You can't hand them someone that series and go, here, watch this. You'll understand. People are like, I'm not, that's 14 yeah. seasons. I'm not starting that. But you can hand someone a DVD. Or show them, you know, send them a file and say, watch this movie. These are the guys that I watch every day. And so, you know, sharing that is a big part of people. Sharing that experience with other people who also enjoy it. That's been so, like, decentralized for people. It's been outsourced to the internet. And for gamers in particular, you know, you used to sit on the couch next to your friend and you would play Nintendo. And that's how you would form relationships with your gamer buddies. But because of the internet and Xbox Live and, you know, online gaming... You can play anybody in the world, but you don't ever have the experience, that social right. experience sitting next to people. So people are clamoring for that, I think. Well, that, that's reassuring that people still want to be around each other. Not everybody. There's, there are definitely some people who don't. Some people you don't want to be around. I have some other business questions I want to ask you, but before we get to that, one last piece of business here. How about that segue? We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, SoFi. SoFi is a new kind of finance company. You've taken out student loans to invest in yourself and your career. SoFi wants to help you out. SoFi members who refinance their federal and private student loans can save an average of $17,000. But they're not a bank, so they can do cool things a bank doesn't do, like they give you tons of great perks. You get career strategy services, an entrepreneurship program, customer support seven days a week. 
You can even get invitations to local SoFi events. There's happy hour, professional panels, networking. I think SoFi even brought some people to the Code Conference last year, which is a very cool benefit. From saving money on student loans to helping you build your career, SoFi wants to help you reach every goal you set. You can find your rate at SOFI.com. That's SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. I'm back here with Bernie Burns from Rooster Teeth. You guys sold the company in 2014. Right. Did you make a lot of money? Yes. Good for you. Thanks. Um, you sold it to, uh, what was it called then? Chernin Group? Otter Media. Otter Media. Which is a joint venture between Chernin and at and So Peter Chernin, former number two guy at News Corp, big respected guy in Hollywood. And really full screen is, we were acquired by full screen, which is, it's a, right. Otter is a crunchy roll, full screen, rooster teeth. Right, so, so you got bought by Fullscreen, which is part of Otter Media, which is basically the combination of, of, of Peter Chernin and AT&T correct. own the company that you work for now. That is correct. That's a fair statement. Besides getting a big chunk of money, hopefully it's life-changing money, how else did that change your life when you guys sold the company? Well, for us, it's always – our you know this was our hobby that turned into our career. So we are, even after 14 years, still riding that wave – of passion. Like there's a lot of times when we have to pinch ourselves. We just all enjoy coming. You're in the videos. I'm in the videos. You put yourself in a lot of these videos. Right. And you know, my main passion is actually as a writer. And so sometimes I act and direct under protest. So you would do this for free. I don't know if I did. I don't know if I'm going record. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) I knew you wouldn't say that because your boss is here. But for us being able to produce more and more content, that, that was the big thing for us. And really the decision of the acquisition for us was when we got started in this in 2003, we thought that we were late to the video game. That sounds weird to say it that yeah. way. We were late to the video world. Late you know, to the, the video industry. The video industry. Because we had watched the way the print industry had been disrupted in the mid-90s by the rise of the internet and HTML pages. And then as a function of bandwidth getting a little bit bigger and people could transfer larger file sizes, we saw how the music and audio industry was totally disrupted by Napster and other things like yep. that. And that was, that was 1999. So it seemed inevitable that the video industry was also film and television were going to be disrupted. It's coming. By video on the internet. It's coming. And we started in 2003. We thought we were late to this. Right. Turns out we were about eight years early. And I gave a lot of credit to Netflix when they converted from a mail DVDs to your house service to subscription digital. That was, I think, the moment when everybody suddenly was They pushed in. the future a lot closer. Yes. Suddenly that inevitability was imminent. And so we, we wanted to be able to compete in the world of Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Video. We wanted to be able to make that kind of content and compete on that level. And that's why a relationship with a company like Fullscreen just made perfect so sense. So they write you guys a big check personally, and then they say, we're going to spend a lot of money helping you produce more and more stuff. That's I should have you negotiate screens. the deal, by the way. It's I hope you got every a big time check. you say something. Yeah. Was it life-changing? Was it life-changing? Yeah. I would say yes, but my life didn't change because I was already doing what I wanted to do yeah. for a pa- – you know, it was my passion. If I was going to retire, I was going to re- – I would retire to do these kinds of things. I'm not going to retire to go play golf. But this you is what reti- I wanted to do. You could retire. I always try to push people to talk honestly about money. Sure. As honestly as they Yeah, can. I could retire. Good for you. Thanks. It's cool to do something you like and then get paid for it. Well, you know, it's uh, – if you want to talk honestly about it too, it's like also – Having started as someone who is in a spare bedroom with four of my friends, uh, over 14 years, one of the big challenges becomes, and it's, I recognize it's hard to identify with, but how do you stay motivated? How do you stay hungry? And it's like I always have to find new ways to challenge myself and to hit new goals. And so you always have to set those for yourself. There's nothing in me that wants to just walk away and, 
and do what, you know? So what's the 2017 goal for Bernie? Oh, for me, I the main thing for 2017 is I would love to get back to directing. And the series that Matt and I started, we were in the basement of a television station in college when we came up with the idea for the schedule. I'm super excited about developing that into a series. And then a big thing for me is uh, Rooster Teeth is one of those rare online entities where we now have multiple generations of talent that our audience loves. Kind of like an, we, it's like an SNL model that we follow. And developing some of those people uh, into huge personalities, uh, that's a huge goal for me. Because some of these people like Gavin Free, who runs, do you know the channel Slow Mo Guys, by any chance, on nope. YouTube? Does high-speed photography, makes some of the best videos I've ever seen online. I've known him since he was 15. He was, he was watching Red versus Blue videos in his house in the UK. And so developing them and seeing their careers blossom, that's a huge thing for me as well. So there are people who are Bernie fans. They want to see you. I would hope so. And, you're par- and you do podcasts and you talk about your personal life, right, to some degree. Probably not the money no, part. No, way more than I should. Once the mic turns on and we start talking the podcast, it's all old friends. Sometimes we forget the mics are there. And, and, and is that because you think people want to hear that or just it's what you like to do? I like, think it's like I like to be honest, and, yeah. you know, as, as definitely as honest as I can be, you know. And I, I grew up – I was always a big fan of Howard Stern growing up, and I, I'm, I'm a big believer in that model of you know, Rooster Teeth, the culture of the company – is a part of the show. It's why a lot of people tune in. It's because they see the way that we all interact. Right, and you're not an old person. I'm 43. You're 43. In the gaming world, that's in esports, you age out at about 22, and I was 29 when I started Red vs. Blue. And, so. and I'm 45, and when I go to VidCon, which is the big go YouTube fan club slash industry thing, I feel really old, right? Because the, the, the base there is 13, 14-year-old girls. Um, it's mind-blowing and really interesting to watch, but you definitely get a sense of no matter what YouTube says, their culture is teens and tweens. It seems like you guys probably have a, a broader audience, or at least if they're willing to accept you as a 43-year-old guy on, on camera, uh, they're, they're more accepting of a wider swath of people. Well, it's interesting to say broad audience because we our strategy is actually not what we consider to be a broad strategy, but a deep one. We go in really deep with the audience that we have, and so I think the reason why they're able to tolerate me as a 43-year-old is because they've already spent so much time with me and we have so much interaction. We consider media to be a two-way conversation. That's well put. Well, you know, we look at our, it's hard to compare ourselves to any company in particular because there's not a lot of companies in our tier. Because when I think of YouTube or when I think of video companies that were successful or are successful, it's almost always a teenager, someone who's in their 20s, someone who's aging out of their 20s and is anguished about that but doesn't really want to accept that. <laughs> uh, or, or they're make, or like the, you know, the Smosh guys, right, who are sort of boy band dudes and now they're sort of aging out of that. They're trying to figure out how to create a version of Smosh that it will exist beyond them at some point. Right. You guys seem like you don't really have that problem. Pivoting more to a brand. And Smosh is one of those rare ones like us where it's a brand and typically on YouTube, the bigger channels, they're named after the person. Right. It's like a, it's all in on one person. Right. One day PewDiePie won't be PewDiePie, right? And will right. his audience go with him? Right. Well, you know, he's now talking about deleting his channel when he hits 50 million subs. Yeah, he's going to bum some people out if he does that. So. Yeah. Well, he's trying to fight the changes on the YouTube algorithm. But, you know, I mean, we don't really talk too much about that because we YouTube's a big part of our business. But – we rely more on our .com, and YouTube's just an aspect of it. So if YouTube needs to make algorithm changes to make the platform healthier as a whole, then that's just their business. Just nod your head in respectful silence. Yeah, exactly. You know. Most video – in most digital video companies today say, well, we're not just doing stuff on screen and we're not doing stuff on a phone. We're eventually we're, – we're either in TV or we're going to get to TV. Is that an aspiration for you guys? So we've had a lot of opportunities over the years to uh, take, for instance, Red versus Blue, individual properties to television – 
you know, we just choose those opportunities as they make sense. We're very format agnostic. Uh, even when we made Laser Team, which is a feature, that sounds like something that you would put into theaters. And when it came time to release it, it made sense to put it in theaters and then to put it a few days later on a subscription video on demand service. But that's the way we approach all of our distribution for content is we make the content. Uh, we make the content as good as it should be. And then we determine how we should distribute it. So I get why if you're a digital video company, you'd want the stuff to go on TV because there's money there. Oftentimes a lot more money than there is on the internet. A slightly less cynical version of it would be, well, we can reach a much bigger audience. But again, for someone who's viewing it from 10,000 feet or more, it seems like I would assume most people who are viewing this stuff and want to view this stuff are getting it on the screen they want already. And they're probably not watching television, which is why with the reason all these TV companies are interested in the stuff you guys and other people are doing. Um, and it seems like this this desire to port the internet to the television is right. probably not going to work. Right. And a lot of creators suffered for a long period of time because they would get a television pilot deal. They would abandon their web audience because a lot of times they took it for granted. It was so easy, they, they think, to build that web audience. They would disappear for six months to work on what is would ultimately be a failed pilot deal. And then they would come back to the web and say, hey, I'm back. And the internet has an exceptionally short memory. And a lot of people abandon They'll stay ship. with you, and then, but if you go away, they'll forget about you. As long as you keep going. It's very momentum-based. Yeah. So that's why you'll see a lot of vloggers that, who do daily vlogs and the grind just kills them. They just feel like they can't stop doing it. They just keep going. Right, because you can't get off the treadmill. No. You, you don't, you don't want to disappear from view. So for us in television, it's like we had opportunities to go to television with Red versus Blue – and, you know, we looked at those, this is like 2008, we had some of these opportunities uh, as early as then. And we looked at it as we never wanted to abandon the web strategy because, we, like we said, we knew everyone was headed this direction. We knew everyone was eventually going to be sprinting toward the ground on which we were standing, you know. And we'd spent those early years building up our presence in online video when it wasn't that interesting and it wasn't that sexy. And we spent all that time doing and establishing ourselves. We weren't going to give that up. Early in the conversation, I said millennial. You didn't twitch. I said gamer. He said, I don't, I don't like that term. I prefer not to call myself a gamer. Is that I'm, – I'm wondering if any of that sort of ideological or, or you're worried about the connotation of Gamergate and any sort of the notion that some people who are gamers are also now sort of awful people as well who harass people online, send nasty Twitter messages. Oh, no. I mean we've dealt with some of that. Um, I actually did a tweet recently where I had to realize that Gamergate inadvertently prepared me for the 2016 election. The campaign. Right. right. I've that, heard this theory before, right? So if you don't know what Gamergate is, you're probably going to have to pause now and go look it up. We'll see you lucky. in two years. But basically, it's, a, it's a, a handful of people probably being really vile and awful to a, another group of people. And then a lot of people sort of standing on the side and going, that's weird. And But the people on that side who are mixed in with the vile people, there's another group of people who are saying that the reason why they were doing it were for more noble reasons to put pressure on media. Ethics and journalism. Ethics and journalism. There we go. And so it's, I, it's the same thing as when I talk to my uh, friends who voted for Trump and they say, well, I didn't vote for Trump because of all the racist wall building stuff. That's not why I did it. You know, or the you know, revisioning of gay marriage. That's not why I voted for him. I voted for this other, these other reasons, more noble reasons. And I say, you got to understand for most of the world, they can't drill through – those deal breakers to get to the reasons why you did right. it. Right. Amazingly, they do connect you with the racist people. It happens. You know, that's that's the way it worked. And the Gamergate was the same thing. There were there were female game developers and female uh, games journalists who were doxxed, which means they took their personal information and posted up their address online and everything and made horrible threats right, to them. Right, they had to move. Yeah. There were, and so it was just it, – it was, it was horrible. And it lasted for such a long period of time. Usually on the internet, stuff blows over. 
I made a tweet about it just recently, and I'm still getting. I'll get tweets about this. Just even just the mentioning of it. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. It's okay. I don't mind being part of the conversation. I never have. People always say don't read the comments on YouTube. I couldn't disagree more. You know, people have spent millions of dollars in media trying to figure out what audiences want or what they're watching. And on the internet, it's fantastic. They tell you within two seconds. Some people do, right? And that's, I mean, I always think that it's interesting that Twitter has gotten so much grief for how negative and vile it can be, where YouTube comments have been for knuckle draggers for a very long time. And there's lots of positive comments as well, but people say the most awful things and somehow Google has gotten no heat for it at all. Mm-hmm. So did Gamergate actually like help you sort of predict Trump? Did you see that coming then in retrospect? I was connecting the dots afterwards. Yeah, afterwards. Where, yeah, where I realized like all the analysis of media where media can't be believed in any way. Yeah, anything, any information you're getting, if I don't agree with it, it's biased information. There was a lot of that from Gamergate. And of course there were all the, all the hot button issues from the Trump campaign you know, of, you know, building the wall, everything else that people were being lumped into where, you know, people who were voting for Trump who were trying to say they were voting for the more noble reasons, they just, they couldn't be separated. Does your audience want to engage you guys in that discussion? Do you want to engage them in that discussion? Do you think, all right, maybe we should create stuff that's about politics or create some sort of forum for this? Well, I mean, part of it is, you know, Rooster Teeth, we don't try to present ourselves as being authorities in any way in in terms of our shows. I mean, we're more so, it's the two-way conversation with our audience is, we consider it to be like a big group of friends. And that's how we engage with our audience. And also, we fully recognize that when people come to watch our shows, that there's an escapism there. And you know, we don't want to bog them down with political discussions. We don't spend a lot of time doing it. But we are citizens of the world, and you know, as we live our lives, we form our own opinions, and it's impossible not to let those be known. But you're probably not going to say, like, have a Taiwan-China trade tariff probably not. show. Okay. Well, we know. We, I mean, a lot of times we get into more like long-form science and science fiction debates. Yeah. That kind of thing. We're more likely to have a debate over whether or not a lightsaber could cut through adamantium. You got an, answer? <laughs> you got an answer for that? No, there's no answer. There's All no right. right answer. Maybe. That one I'm actually scared to say out loud. <laughs> Maybe you can address that in a video one day in the future. Bernie, this has been great. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks for listening to the show all year long. We love it. We love it when you subscribe. We love it when you tell other people about it. We love it even if you send semi-anonymous thank you notes like someone did today to our website at Recode. That's great, too. Any kind of praise is good. It's also great if you listen to Kara Swisher's show, Recode Decode, Lauren Good's show, Too Embarrassed to Ask. Recode Replay is where we put up all our fancy conference audio up for free. So you can go listen to that. I just talked to Janine Gibson from BuzzFeed and John Martin, who runs Turner, and Jim Vandehei, who has started Politico and has a new startup coming. Those are all fun interviews. You can all go listen to those for free. Thank you to our awesome sponsors, HelloFresh. They're new to us. Thank you to Mac Weldon and Videoblocks. Thanks to Digital Media, who distributes this show for free. Thanks to you guys. Again, I will see you next week.